Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru, and the publisher of the blog, acowatch.com. This is the eighth broadcast in our weekly series where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the accountable care organization industry, focusing on the emergence of known market entrants, the developing regulatory environment, and ongoing industry buzz. Joining me today as special guest commentator is Brian Klepper, Ph.D. Dr. Klepper is a noted healthcare analyst, consultant, and commentator with broad experience in relationships. He is managing principal of Healthcare Performance, Inc., a business development practice based in Atlantic Beach, Florida, and chief development officer for WeCare TLC, LLC, an on-site clinic firm based in Lake Mary, Florida. An active author and speaker, Dr. Klepper has provided healthcare commentary to CBS Evening News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, and has published articles on Medscape and Health Leaders, and in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine, Modern Healthcare Business Insurance, and Newspapers Nationally. In December, in December of 2010, he founded and now edits the blog careandcost.com, an online professional healthcare magazine and discussion forum. Welcome, Brian. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, Greg. Absolutely. I'm excited about you being here. Thanks. So much of the conversation in the ACO theater, if you will, has centered on hospitals, physicians, and to a lesser degree, the health plan community. On the program today, lawyers. So what's this all about, Brian, and is it newsworthy in the ACO development timeline? Yeah, well, I, let's put some context on this, Greg. I, you know, first, let me start by going back and quoting um, Jeff Goldsmith. I think we both know Jeff. He's a great friend, and he's a, he's a top healthcare analyst. Um, Jeff, Jeff commented that uh, when it's all said and done, accountable care organizations will boil down to health systems providing more care for fewer dollars. And he, he added to that that you might as well go to the Taliban and suggest that they stop growing poppies and take, you know, start growing arugula instead. <laughs> um, the, the, and I think he's right. Um, I, I think that we have to we have to understand that healthcare is a very, very lucrative business for a lot of people that um, costs in the form of premium, premium is the place where costs throughout the entire continuum of care converge, the cost has, has grown by four times as fast as general inflation for more than a decade. And that as a result of that, um, a very large percentage of, um, of people who, who had always had coverage who were enrolled in commercial, in commercial health plans have fallen away. Something, something between 10 and 15% of all commercial health plan enrollees have fallen away in the last four to five years. So that what that means is not just more uninsured people. That means that there's less money in the system to, um, to pay for uh, drugs and orthopods and, and everything else that, that we buy in healthcare. For employers, it's been their largest and most unpredictable 
line item costs. And employers have been pretty freaked out over the last several years over the cost of, of coverage, and, and they're up in arms about it. Now, um, they, are, they have, were apparently not so up in arms about it that, that they came together, they, they did not come together to overwhelm the influence of the healthcare industry during reform. But, um, but they should have. And they certain, there are certainly a lot of factions in, in the industry or, or in non-healthcare business that are um, beside themselves over the cost of healthcare and what it means not only for their bottom line, but for their global competitiveness. So, so when we're talking about ACOs and we're talking about whether they can actually work, one of the things that really matters uh, is the actual goal, which is that we need to be able to deliver a lot more care for a lot less money, which means that hospitals and doctors will ultimately walk home with less. Now, you know, that may seem like that's easily doable because we have, there are a number of studies, PricewaterhouseCoopers study, I think you and I were talking about it a minute ago from 2008, shows that 55% of all healthcare dollars are completely wasted. They provide no benefit at all. There's, there are many, many, many er, areas, I, you know, I could list dozens, where we have inappropriate utilization, way higher than it should be, um, uh, using, sur, using procedures that don't work, things like cardiac stents and stable heart patients, um, too, many, too many images, and so on. By moderating those, we could we could have more appropriateness in the system, but we but we also would would be that would also translate to fewer revenues for for the health system. I mean, if you believe numbers like the PricewaterhouseCoopers numbers, and you think that healthcare reform is a good thing, which I do, by the way. Um, one of the reasons that the industry is, in general, so adamantly opposed to healthcare reform is because if, if the provisions in it came to fruition and if we started being providing care that was more appropriate all the time, then revenues in the industry would drop somewhere between a third and a half. And nobody is going to like that in the industry, although it would mean tremendous relief for the employers and other, and other people who pay for health care. That's the, that's, the, that's the dynamic tension that we have to deal with now. Yeah, that, that's the Taliban negotiation. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, I, I think that, that um, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves there, there are a lot of people who are, who are already making big proclamations about what ACOs will and will not be able to do, but, but we don't know what the, regs, what the regs are on them yet. They haven't been released yet. And we have to understand several things about what ACOs are going to, are going to have to do. One is they will need to be able to manage the care process very aggressively. But also, to get, to, to get there, they will have to have very strong incentives. In my view, that means in the short term, there need to be very positive financial incentives for, hit, for hitting certain kinds of 
cost and outcome targets. They need to, if you hit certain targets, you need to get a big percentage of the share, a big a big share of the of the of the savings. But some of that share, some of that savings needs to go back to the employers too. Um, in the long term, there needs to be very severe um, severe penalties for people for, for health systems that do not get targets. In other words, who, who haven't wanted to do this because they thought that they could make more money by doing it the old way and doing a lot of unnecessary services. I mean, these, these are the things. Now, when you and I were talking earlier, um, I, I mentioned that I also have a, uh, an on-site clinic firm, and, and my clinics are comprehensive primary care, pla uh, uh, primary care practices. But those primary care practices are, are very 21st century, and they are, they are fully realized medical homes. I'll, I'll, I'll describe what that means in a moment. But they're also um, full continuum medical management platforms that influence care all through the continuum. And, and because of the things that they're able to do, even in our early results, which mean, by which I mean you know, someday we'll do it a lot better than we do it now, but we're doing it pretty well now. We're saving 30% at times off, off the cost of current health plans, net of the cost of the clinic, somewhere between 20 and 30% pretty consistently. Um, in other words, in other words, there is that slot in the system that can be easily managed out. And that is a thing that needs to be health, uh, um Health plans are beginning to look at clinics, but, but an important thing for your listeners to think about is the explosion in interest among employers in on-site clinics. And, what, and, and, and the question is, why are they so interested? Um, it turns out that for an employer to come to contemplate a clinic, pretty much what they're thinking is my health plan is not doing much that's in my favor. Um, if I'm going to if I'm going to drive down these outrageous costs, then I need to be able to do it myself. So what a clinic really is. Let, let me stop let me just add let me stop you there and just ask you that's a very poignant question. At, at some level, it's almost an indictment that the health plan community just hasn't really managed the risk out there from an employee perspective. How pervasive is this attitude or sentiment? It's, it's, it's deep and it's national. And if it weren't, you wouldn't have every mid-sized and large corporation in the country looking at clinics right now. Um, I currently have clinics. I, I currently have 11 clinics. Within the next two months, I'll have 15. I expect my census of patients to grow three to four times this year. Um, other clinic companies are having similar experiences. I happen to think that my clinics are way out there ahead, but but uh, but in terms in terms of the uh, of organizations that are snapping them up, um, the experience is pretty consistent. Um, Can I ask you just before you get further into the clinic model, just yeah. maybe touch on 
how does the employer get sort of hooked into this uh, ACO? Uh, you know, what's the attraction to an ACO? How, how is that enabled or incented? Well, I mean, right now there are many, many hospitals in the country who would like to who would like employers to just work directly with them. But as we all know, for the last 50 years under a fee-for-service model, um, a specialty-driven fee-for-service model, a specialty-dominated fee-for-service model, um, there are all kinds of perverse incentives for physicians and health systems to do as many services on every patient as is possible. Um, so this is this is why we have um, this is why we've had premium inflation four times general inflation for a decade, and this is why we know that 55% of all the cost is unnecessary. Um, that, that, that when you get them in, when you, you get a patient in and you have these, and you are financially conflicted, um, you're in a position to order services, order procedures for a patient that they might not otherwise need, but you can get paid for. Um, there are all kinds of financial conflicts. So, and we don't, we don't have mechanisms in the system that very effectively um, moderate that. That you, I mean, we don't have transparency of data. Uh, we don't have good patient advocates who are fiduciaries for the people paying the bill. So, so if you know, when I see a clinic that is sponsored by a hospital, you know, I conveniently point out to the prospect. That if they sign up with that clinic, that they're they're going to experience a big burst in specialty and inpatient visits because that that clinic may be a low cost primary care function, but it is almost certainly designed in the DNA from the DNA of the health system to refer in. So so with this, when you use clinic, are you including some of the convenience? Care, urgent care, mini clinic type models, or are we talking well, something when, different? When they are aligned with with hospital systems, yes. I mean, in my community, for example, there's an organization called Solantic. It's a convenience care clinic, and it is aligned with one of the local health systems, uh, Baptist. Uh, in that model, you need to be you need to be suspicious that you know they're they're urging patients who drop by that convenience care clinic to be referred in early and often. Um, that's simply the structure of it. But uh, convenience care clinics are not medical homes. They are they are very good at what they do. They are catch-as-catch-can medicine. Uh, they, there, there you go. They're, 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 they're not, yeah. I'm sorry, Brian. There's the clincher, the idea it's not a medical home. Talk, talk more right. about that. Yeah. A, a medical home should be two things. A medical home should be, um, just like everybody knows, it should be a place where patients can turn for, for medical concerns and medical information. But a medical home is really something that's much bigger than that. And that is, uh, and this is a, this is a paraphrasing Peggy O'Kane's, uh, Peggy O'Kane's definition from NCQA. A medical home should be a place that is actually thinking about you and your health needs whether you're standing in front of the doctor or not. 
And what that requires is a level of information, uh, a health information technology that very, very few current primary care practices have. You know, um, when, a, when a patient walks in to one of my clinics um, and, the, and, and, and walks into the doctor, a screen comes up and it says, Mrs. Jones is a diabetic. Have you checked her eyes? Have you checked her feet? Has she had a hemoglobin A1C? And it won't release that screen until the doctor does something about that. There are prompts that say, here's what this patient who has arrived needs today. You know, there are tools now that will, that will aggregate information from wherever, wherever it's available, drug data, claims data, lab data, uh, electronic health record data, create a registry of patient records, and then roll through every patient record every day and say, what for that patient, for this patient today? And sometimes it may say, the next time, the next time Mr. Smith comes in, he needs to have his prostate checked, or it may say, uh, go out and get Mrs. Brown and bring her in because she needs to have something today. Um, that kind of proactive care that is evidence-based and, and, uh, um, and very efficient uh, is, a, is a new day in healthcare. And, it meets, and, it, and it's focused on delivering the right care at the right time all the time to every patient. So, and it's more like you've got to have infrastructure, you have to have the mindset of perhaps population management, and that's just not in the DNA necessarily of your average run-of-the-mill convenience care clinic. That, that's right, and it's not, in, it's not also, it, it takes, uh, it takes um, skills, it takes infrastructure, knowledge of business process, and money, to put, to put all that together, um, most primary care practices just don't have this capability. Uh, and they don't have the money to invest in that capability, especially as underpaid as primary care has been for so long. So talk um, more about your model now, Brian. How are you, what do you bring to the table? I mean, obviously the employers have skin in the game. Uh, maybe, maybe the new act uh, has some incentives for the more proactive involvement, either sponsorship or organization of ACOs. How do they do that, and why would they look at uh, this new model that you're bringing to the? Like I said, Greg, when, a, when, an, when an employer, for an employer to go down this path, they sort of have to have come to the realization that the health plan just isn't, just doesn't have their their interests, you know, uppermost. And so what a, health, what a clinic essentially is, is a covenant between, a health, between a, an employer and a doctor where the employer says, look, I'm going to pay you more money than you can make in private practice, but I want you to do three things. I want you to take more time with every patient. I want you to, um, I want you to uh, invest in 21st century uh, clinical technologies, um, the kind of tools I was talking about a moment ago, electronic health records and all of the bells and whistles that they can do. Are they employed, the docs? Yes. In our clinics, the, the doctors are employed, yes. Um, and then, then I want you to make sure that you 
force yourself into, co into a collaborative relationship with the specialist, something that really hasn't existed for 25, 30 years since managed care got stolen. Um, and, and if you do those things, then, then costs will come down. I'll, I'll save a lot of money, and, and my patients will get better, better quality care. What I am in that, in that scenario is I'm, a, I'm the turnkey. Um, I, I have put together, or my team has put together, a, um, uh, all the infrastructure that's required, all the business processes that are required, and we, and we run it um, uh, for, for employers. And now we're beginning to get interesting to, re, to, to health plans who see this as a way to manage, um, to, to do medical management. That would have that would have in the past been located inside the health plan, but by, by positioning it at the front end of the care delivery system, where it can get the most traction over the rest of the care delivery system. If it's an employment model, um, does it vary by market? For instance, you know, Florida is pretty well penetrated by a corporate entities employing physicians, but you have certain states that have corporate practice and medicine restrictions where that can't happen. So does it does that vary by market? It, it can, but but um, typically there are workarounds for all of that. The the key is that, uh, and this is an important issue too. And, and then when we when we're done with this little part, then I, I want to move back to ACOs because I want to say some stuff about that. But but um, in the in the main, um, what this is about is is a model where, unlike the rest of healthcare, which is a merchant model, all of healthcare is a merchant model. Everybody in healthcare says, I'm going to do this, give you this product or this service with a markup. Uh, in, that, in that scenario, though, uh, they have a perverse financial incentive for, for it to cost more because, because they're always getting a markup. In our model, I don't get paid a markup. The, the costs of running the clinic are passed through with no markup, with no profit margin to, to my client. And then at the end of the month, they pay me a management fee for, for each, each patient. And, and that's what I get paid for, for just managing the process. So in that, in that scenario, I have no financial incentive to deliver more, to deliver unnecessary care, or to deny necessary care, that is a key a key issue because I don't have um, I don't have a vested interest in the patient getting more or less care. I only have a have a vested interest in the patient getting the right care. This is the this is the core problem that health systems will have to grapple with. If a health if a health system that becomes an ACO is really going to succeed as an ACO. And if the incentives are such that it does make sense for them to want to deliver less care so that they can optimize their take in some way, then, then they have to have a process where they are, where they are, um, they are neutral and they have no vested interest in it costing more or costing less. They need to, to be in a model where they where they have a vested interest in always delivering exactly the most appropriate care. That is the place, that is far away from where we are now all over the country. 
so Brian, this there have been some joking, uh, tongue in cheek characterizations of HBOs as unicorns, you know, uh, everyone's you know, can't yeah. know what the quote is and no one's seen one or something like that. That's from Mark Smith of the California Healthcare Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Chasing unicorns. The counterfeit care organization is like a unicorn, a fantastic creature that's infested with mythical powers, but no one's actually seen one. It, it seems like the model you're proposing that has this alignment of incentive and infrastructure and culture, that, that might be an enabler here in this ACO design. Um, yeah. First of all, let me say that um, I know Mark, and he is a funny guy. <laughs> um, the, the, I, I, think, I think you're right. I, I think that we're, we're shooting for something that is culturally very different than what it has been for the last 50 years. We're shooting, you know, we're, we're shooting, we're asking people who have, who have been in a mindset of, of producing care that is as expensive as possible for a very long time to suddenly only do what's appropriate. And it's a long way from here to there. I don't know how it can be done very effectively, unless health system organizations um, recruit someone, someone who, who really does medical management and doesn't have a dog in the fight of whether it costs more or less from the outside, and and put them at the front end of the system. I don't know. I don't know how you can transition an industry over, you know, in a relatively short time just by putting in incentives if the incentives are there. So, um, where, where's I mean, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Where's this leadership going to come from? Well, I think there are a few people in the, in the industry who are very, you know, who are very strong leaders. Uh, I think of Paul Levy at Beth Israel Deaconess. I think of, I, I mean, now in leadership, I think you, I think we need to talk about Real leaders who are practitioners, not not theorists like you know wonderful wonderful people like Elliot Fisher, um, you know whose idea this was, but but he's not a practitioner. Um, but people like uh, Alan Weiss at, at Beth Israel, I mean at, at Naples Community Hospital, Paul Levy at Beth Israel Business in Boston, Gary Kaplan at at, at, uh, at Virginia Mason in Seattle. Um, uh, Anna K. Dykes at the Providence System in Spokane. Um, these are people who who think all day, every day about how to do things well. Um, the, the the where I was going is, um, you know, the big mistake that was made uh, perhaps twice now in sub subsequent iterations of evolution along competitive, um, you know, managed competition markets is. Uh, Lots of money get th gets thrown at it, and there's these cookie cutter checklists, you know, check the box, kind of done, done, done in execution. But what they're just doing is replicating a model that is flawed fundamentally from a local market perspective. You know, I I agree with that, and I think that's one of the huge dangers. I think one of the what one of the things we're talking about here is the possibility that that if there are incentives for hospitals to come together with doctors and and, and have these have these unified monolithic health systems that are going to manage things, that all you're really doing in a lot of cases is consolidating power in a way that allows them to, ch to charge and abuse the system even more.
Right. So will the mature IDNs lead the charge? Will it be reconfigured, repurposed IPAs supported by MSOs that have, you know, the core skill sets and infrastructure to play this out? Will they lead? Will it be employers working through models like yours? You know, we're, we're coming up on two minutes, Brian, so if you could maybe come down with some concluding thoughts. I, I hate to cut this conversation off. We just touched the surface here. I think I think that it's uh, I think that it's two things. One is whether it all, whether any of these things work will will ultimately depend very clearly on the incentives that come out of the regulation. The regulation. If the if the Obama administration does not have courage to make the incentives very powerful, then then this is a this is a waste of time. Uh, the employers will do what is in their own interest. If they, if they don't see that the system is going to do anything serious to moderate their costs, they'll continue to hire people like me to drive their costs down. Well, I, that sounds like job security to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish it, you know, there's part of it wishes it was true, but it, but it, but I'm, it unfortunately is true. And while we're having this conversation, you know, the best and the brightest minds came together to put together this 2,000-page document, which is onerous in terms of volume of paper, but there's lots of good uh, strategies that are enabled in it. And, if, and, and while we're talking about this, there's this theater in Washington going on about repeal. So it's kind of interesting. So, Brian, I want to thank you uh, for uh, participating today. I, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Perhaps we can get you back to talk further as the uh, as the guidance comes out and uh, when it drives more specific conversation in the employer theater. But, uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Okay, so that's Dr. Brian Klepper, publisher of the blog careandcost.com. Check it out. And uh, next week we are open as far as who the guests will be, but we'll post that to the blog once done. Thanks for joining us and tune in again next week. Bye now.